1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody,
2: and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Lerner, and I'm coming from the University of Southern California, and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Professor Robin Judd. Professor Judd, who earned her Ph.D. in German and Jewish history at the University of Michigan, is Associate Professor of History at The Ohio State University, where she specializes in Jewish, transnational, and gender history. With particular interests in Holocaust studies, the history of anti Semitism, the history of religion, the history of leadership, and the history of migration. Extremely active in academic and community service, Professor Judd is a recent past president of the Association for Jewish Studies. Among her many publications are the book Contested Rituals Circumcision, Kosher Butchering, and Jewish Political Life in Germany, 1843 to 1933, which appeared with Cornell University Press in 2009. The book emphasizes the agency of the rabbis, community officials, and ordinary German Jews who grappled with political opportunities and setbacks, advancing the field beyond previously dominant narratives of assimilation and anti-Semitic persecution to show how German Jews navigated these entangled identities and imperatives, adapting to modernity and responding to changing political and cultural constellations. Her new book, which is the subject of today's discussion, is Between Two Worlds, Jewish War Brides After the Holocaust. It was published last year by the University of North Carolina Press and just received two National Jewish Book Awards. So I'm very happy to have Professor Robin Judd here with us today. Welcome, Robin.
0: Thanks so much, Paul. It's so great to be here.
2: It's really nice to talk to you, and I'm very excited about the book. And I think before we dive into the book, I just want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to our listeners to tell us a little bit about your. to becoming a historian and how your particular set of interests came together. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, please.
0: I am a, a historian who has always been interested in storytelling, but I did not necessarily think of myself as a historian when I was an undergraduate. Even though I was a double major in history and political science, I really wanted to be the next Bella Absund. I wanted to run for Senate from the state of New York. And I had long sort of imagined myself in that capacity, um, that I would use history as storytelling as a way to kind of catapult myself into political office. And I worked in DC for a number of years and realized during those years that I loved the questions that drove me around identity politics and community formation and how communities respond in crises. But I didn't want to engage with those questions as a politician. I wanted to engage with those questions as a historian. And so that's what sort of led me on the path uh, first at the University of Michigan, where I did my MA and my PhD. And then that took me here to Columbus, Ohio and the Ohio State University.
2: Great. Thank you so much. And I can see uh, one of the questions I wanted to get into was storytelling, because this book. It does many things, but one of the things it does is collect a lot of stories, which are often quite moving and epic in, in scope. So I see how that continues to animate your work. Um, I I think the the next question I wanted to ask you, people who've had the chance to read the book already will know the answer, I think, at least in part. But um, for those who haven't, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this this particular topic and where the idea for the book came from.
0: So the idea really had two origin points. One is a three-story walk-up in Yonkers, New York, where my grandparents lived um, along with uh, my great uncles and aunts. So there were three sets of family on three different stories. And at the very top story was my grandparents' home and uh, there were photographs of my grandfather as an American GI in his military uniform. He fought with the Blue Devils in Italy. And there was a photo of my grandmother's gymnasium class uh, in Slovak Czechoslovakia, where she was the only woman. And I knew at a really young age that my grandmother had been a Jewish war bride. But the way she told her story and the ways in which I had learned narratives around the Holocaust, I thought her experience was really exceptional. So that would mean that the second origin point is in the classroom. When I began teaching history of the Holocaust, I really wanted to teach it differently than the ways in which I had learned it, which meant using more memoirs uh, in the history classroom, including memoirs written by women. and. As I began to gather some of the early memoirs written by female survivors, I noticed a trend, namely that several of them ended with mentioning the men that they met either at liberation or immediately after liberation and married them. So that then led me to begin to ask the question about my grandmother, how unique was she, and about these women more generally, to what degree was there a subset of Jewish war brides who had been Holocaust survivors among the much larger category of war brides more generally.
2: That's a perfect segue for the next question I wanted to ask you, which is if you could define a war bride and tell us in what ways are the the Jewish war brides who are the subject of of your book uh, different from the kind of broader population of war brides?
0: So as you know, Paul, I mean, one of the things that we always struggle with is the usage of various terms, And the term war bride is not a perfect one for for many reasons but in essence war brides refer to the civilians living abroad who marry military personnel who are serving in those locations and the term war bride itself is a term that's used by the american and canadian forces with tremendous regularity during the second world war it's used less by the British, which is why using the term war bride isn't perfect. Um, also, you could be a male war bride. So the term war bride suggests that all war brides were women, but but they were not. Uh, one one could be a male war bride. And indeed, Cary Grant has a well-known movie, I Was a Male War Bride, which doesn't have anything to do with Jews, but has everything to do with the war bride phenomenon. Um, the U.S., Britain and... Canada, which are the three countries that I study, were not unique in that they had military regulations that dictated when and how a member of the military personnel could marry a foreign civilian. Um, They also had regulations surrounding the immigration of those individuals. And so those are the policy questions that in many ways shape the larger project that I embarked on. The women that I study were unique. I should really say the women and men that I study because there were some Jewish male war brides, again, exceptional, but there were some. Uh, They shared several commonalities with other war brides. They were governed by some of the similar policies. They also had to make decisions about how they would travel to the United States, Britain, and Canada? Would they take advantage of the war bride ships or trains or planes that were sponsored by those countries? Or would they choose to travel privately? There were a number of ways in which they um, shared other commonalities. They were moving into their spouses' homes after the war, often to a culture that was unfamiliar to them. The survivors that I study were unique um, in that first they become wrapped up in questions around fraternization that were um, sometimes similar and sometimes different from other war brides. So for example, the U.S., Britain, and Canada all had policies regarding which members of the military personnel could interact with civilians in occupied Germany after the war. And They um, shift and revise that fraternization policy over the course of 1945 so that we'll actually see the military forces having different policies around whether or not the former victims of the Nazi Reich can marry. And some of that will depend on where they're born. So um, that might mean that a, a woman living in Germany who wants to marry a member of the American military personnel can do so if she's Jewish and in the American zone, can't do so if she's Jewish and in the Canadian zone, definitely cannot do so if she's non-Jewish, German-born and in either of the zones. So it becomes sort of complicated when and where they are the same. Uh, The Jewish women are dealing with this. And men are dealing with the specific traumas of the Holocaust, and that's a lot of what I write about, is how that trauma shaped them, shaped their encounters, shaped their marriages. The encounter sites are a little bit different. One of the things that I'm really interested in is often the ways in which where they met or how they remembered where they met become part of Jewish stories, kind of returning Jews to a place that to use Alon Confino's language, right? Wanted to be a world without Jews. Um, I'm interested in some of their linguistic challenges, the uh, unique sort of uh, obstacles and challenges that uh, Spardic Ladino speakers might have experienced, even when they marry into sort of Jewish families that you might think might have cultural similarities. So there were multiple ways in which they were similar and different from the other war brides around them.
2: Since you mentioned the um, Latino speakers and Sephardic experiences, that um, leads me to remark on one of the things that really strikes the reader in this book that you notice right from the beginning of the first chapter is you're you're dealing with a much more kind of expansive notion of Europe than um, I think many, or, or I should say of those affected by the Holocaust than, than many um historians before you have, that your account takes us into southeastern Europe, into North Africa. It kind of embraces a much broader view of Jewish experience than we often get in stories about the Holocaust. So I I think that must have that's one of the things that makes the book so exciting and so innovative, but I think it also must have made your job a lot more difficult. And I wondered if you could talk about where you found the material, how you chose the particular cases that you delve into fairly deeply in the book, because you, I should mention, for people who haven't had the chance to read the book yet, it there are several recurring characters and kind of major stories that are interspersed with other others uh, briefer accounts and then a kind of very detailed and differentiated picture of, as you were saying before, Robin, the kind of legal, framework and the kind of the different regulations and ordinances, which made immigration and marriage possible in some situations and not in other situations. And I kept, as I was reading it, I kept thinking, how do you keep track of all of this? It's really quite an enormous set of things to keep in your head at one time.
0: This was a great second project. And by that, I mean, I think, I don't know that I could have done it justice for the first book, both because the amount of time that it required, but also uh, just the sort of depth of knowledge, just the you know the sheer quantity of things that we read over over time. Each time we teach, we we bring in new books, we read the new scholarship, and uh, I I think that I was able to sort of rest on the shoulders of the giants that came before me um, for this book and 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 be influenced by some of the really amazing work that's been done in the last decade decade and a half in the history of the holocaust that have pushed us to rethink questions of periodization right that have pushed us to think about questions of geography that have kind of allowed us to think more around understanding liberation and the the sort of the very the long durée of recovery and reconstruction so while I began the project thinking that I would stay in Germany because I'm I I was a Germanist after all right and and thought that it would be sufficient to think about the survivors who marry military personnel meet and marry military personnel uh, in Germany it quickly became obvious to me that, that would offer a really distorted narrative of the Jewish war brides, that if I wanted to do this work, that I had to travel to several different countries, work in several different languages, um, pull together a lot of different data. And I ended up in many ways writing two books or multiple books. I needed to write out several stories first, right? There were, there were aspects of this project that had to get written out that i knew wouldn't be the narrative that would work for the book it would be fascinating to me but boring to almost anybody else right or maybe fascinating to my parents and boring to everybody else um but i did have to write that arc like i had to figure out what was unique about the dutch war brides what was unique about the german war brides what was unique about the tunisian and the algerian right i had to kind of write it out in sections And then take a step back and ask myself, okay, what is the big question driving the book? And the big question driving the book how do these individuals make sense of their world after trauma within these relationships? Like, how does this particular kind of relationship give them a space with which they make sense of the trauma in which they've been experienced? And, um, Really, to do that justice, I needed to pull out a few characters who could illuminate the similarities and differences. So, for example, in that first chapter on liberation, I chose two women whose stories are remarkably distinct. Flora Yagoda, who grows up in Zagreb and experiences the war in uh, an island in, in the sea and then um, in Bari, Italy. So she goes from Split to Crisola to Bari. Mm-hmm. Uh, she meets her husband just around the time that Sala Gronchek is experiencing her nth number of deportations, right? So Sala and Flory are about the same age, and yet their wartime experiences are so different. Um, their liberation experiences are so different. One is a Ladino speaker, one speaks Yiddish. Um, and so I wanted to kind of choose people whose stories could illuminate similarities and differences. Um, and that meant choosing individuals who had multiple forms of sources that I could weave together. My source base was really wide. It included testimonies that had already been done, interviews at the Shoah Foundation um, or at the Holocaust Museum, interviews that I did, uh, memoirs, letters, diaries, chaplaincy reports, commander reports, um, notes and letters from other uh, military personnel who who are writing about these marriages, military papers. Uh, Americanization reports, warship newsletters. The Warbride ships had newsletters that they produced, um, materials from Warbride clubs. I mean, it was it was sort of a wide array of materials. And uh, in some cases, I just had little snapshots of the individuals and in other cases, I was able to bring things together. Um, and it was that helped me choose which of the individuals I would use as characters throughout the book and which of the individuals I might um, reference in the notes or kind of keep in mind as I was doing my writing.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. That's really interesting to hear a bit about your
2: process because the, as I read the book, the stories are so intact and so fulsome, right, and so rich. I even even though I'm a historian, I wasn't always thinking, and I think that's just a testament to your how how elegantly and how kind of fluidly you present everything. I wasn't thinking where did she, how does she know that? Where did she find that? And uh, how why these cases I mean I assumed these cases were chosen to illustrate the range of experiences and also that you had good material on them but I didn't quite I wasn't picturing you working diligently behind the scenes to kind of connect pieces and kind of pull archival finds together with testimonies and memoirs and so forth so I think that's really a, it's it's such a polished and, and elegant book we don't really think about you working so hard behind the scenes, but it's clear upon reflection that this was an enormous amount of work. And I know you were working on it for quite a while and you had to travel quite a bit and go to different archives and were, as you said, work in different languages. So I think that's um that the I was going to ask you before about how you show how you chose the stories that you chose, but I think you already partially answered the question that you were able to kind of find you were able to piece them together in ways that um, other stories, which might have also been interesting, just didn't. There weren't uh, the same sources available for. Um,
0: I think that's absolutely true, and and I mean, and there were stories that I could have included that I didn't. Right? I mean, so uh, one. I'm just thinking, you know, off the top of my head, there's a couple that I referenced really briefly in the book, but there was an earlier version of um, the outline, where they would have had a more significant position. And I I just decided, uh, as I was doing the revising, that I didn't, that they sort of made it heavier and I needed to to take them out. So I think trying to keep an eye towards writing a book that was going to please my colleagues in history, but also be the kind of book that somebody, who might just it might just pull it off the shelf? Um, doesn't necessarily like to read nonfiction, but would find themselves sort of swept up in the narrative. Like I, I wanted to hit both of those sweet spots in terms of the writing.
2: Well, you definitely succeeded at that, and I think you know you, as you said a minute ago, and I wanted to come back to this. You're making interventions in mm-hmm. discussions of trauma and memory and gender, but you're not doing it with a heavy hand. You're kind of um, it's not a kind of heavily analytical academic article, rather one that kind of guides you into these points through through the life experiences and, and the stories. Um, but I did wonder if we could come back to that a little bit and talk about the, as you said, your um, kind of intervening in discussions of periodization, chronology, continuities, and trauma. And how those things play themselves out in these kind of relationship stories. So, in, I mean, in in some ways, it seems to me that a marriage, uh, a relationship, is a sort of a, a place of consolation, of of kind of healing with happy endings. But you show in the book that it's a lot more complicated than that, right? And that the the differences in experiences between husbands and wives often were not often mattered and made life um, continually difficult for, for many of these people. So it's not just the sort of, they met, they fell in love, they got married, they came to the U.S. and lived happily ever after, right? Your stories are a bit more uh, complex.
0: Yeah, as I often say when I speak about the book, for anyone who's been married, right, you know that marriage is not simple. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's a lot of work um, and, uh, and can be quite, quite messy. I I was just so fascinated when I realized that my grandmother's story wasn't unique and that there was this this group of individuals who had married military personnel. I was just so fascinated by them because, of course, we know much about the trend among DPs to marry one another. Uh, And these women and men that I study, we're not part of that world, and in fact, part of the reason why the book is called "Between Two Worlds" is that these individuals move from often the DP camps or other um, returnees, um, survivor constellations, move from that into a war bride space, and they're they're liminal. They don't really fit in either one. Um, they're exceptional in both of those of both of those locations some of the couples that i met were quite explicit about wanting to marry individuals who had not experienced the lager who had not been in the camps and indeed one of one of the women uh in several of her testimonies says something like i wanted to marry a cheery american Um, now of course she marries a canadian um and it says something about what she knew then that even even later in her testimony she thinks of him as a cheery american even though he was he was from montreal uh so we have that we have refugee soldiers who are very um thoughtful about naming a phenomenon of their fiancés, these women that they're meeting as being their new female family members. One refugee soldier writes to his fiancée, you are my sister, you are my mother. Uh, Both of his sister and mother had been murdered in the camps. So there's, there's so much sort of strategy, if you will, that's at play. One of the couples that I study, Lala and Morris Fishman, she related that when she went to the DP camp that Morris ran and, and asked a question about immigration, he said, you should just find yourself a soldier and go to the United States like a war bride. And this was a phenomenon. So there there was so much sort of strategy and um, and thoughtfulness that went into these courtships. You know, the encounter is the encounter, right? And that's something that I try to to, to write about, that I, I don't want to romanticize the encounter and making it something that it was not. What becomes in some ways almost romanticized is the ways in which these couples think about and retell their encounter story so that we move from encounter to courtship and in those moments, they're thinking about questions of immigration and recovery from trauma and what creating a new relationship with this soon-to-be partner means and looks like.
2: It's also interesting how they hide parts of their stories. They decide, and I mean, certainly in your family case, too, as we find out in the end of the book. But, um, right, they do a lot of curating about what they're going to pass on and what what they're going to keep to themselves.
0: So. Absolutely, we all we all do that, right? We we cherry pick the stories that we want to retain as ways to narrate our histories, and depending on who we are, how we're wired, etc., some mm-hmm. of us may cherry pick, you know, fairly optimistic stories. Some of us may cherry pick certain kind of traumatic stories or pessimistic stories, but the the reason why I needed to kind of pull together so many different sources was because um, to build the narrative that I wanted to build, I was trying to uh, integrate or weave together the curation that many of these men and women did alongside and with the materials that I could find in letters, Chaplaincy reports, commander reports, medical reports, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
2: And that comes across very, very well. Um, I guess I wanted, having read a lot of your work now, um, one theme that kind of strikes me that comes through in in different contexts is that you, as a historian of, let's say, modern Jewish, the modern Jewish experience or experiences, you take Judaism very seriously, right? You're I think in the book you're not you write about Jewishness sometimes, but you also write about Judaism in a in a way that some historians I think miss for whatever reason. And I, I found that um in some of the stories you go into, Judaism is really important in and whether it's rituals, observances, uh, devotion, in kind of creating meaning and providing continuity. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the the Judaism of uh, uh, some of your your subjects in the book.
0: So absolutely, and and I would say this is this is a case where having done some some rigorous study into Jewish law, Jewish practice over over the years, you know, beginning as beginning as a graduate student and doing you know the mechinat the Talmud that it, it's really helpful. And it would have been hard to have read some of my sources without that background, right? It, it, and it's like that with anything that we do, which is that when we approach our sources, we have to understand the context at play. For many of the individuals I study, Judaism was at the center of their lives, or if it wasn't at the center, it had a deep influence over various aspects of of practice. And so I mentioned uh, Sala and Abe Bonder earlier, my Montreal couple. That's a wonderful example of a couple who probably in September of 1945, when they met, would have kind of scoffed at religion as uh, shaping, dictating their lives. Even though they met at Rosh Hashanah services, they might have imagined um, them as, as sort of cultural zionist Jews um and yet you know religion plays out in all kinds of ways from the policy shaping their wedding um and how they would marry who would officiate at the wedding um to the 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 settings in which they they meet and spend time religious often religious services um the when individuals could marry mattered with Judaism. And that's something that I write about um, what happens if a soldier is going to be demobilized when it's during a period that Jewish law prohibits marriages from taking place. So there were kind of many moments when Judaism mattered a lot. I I think for me the the moment that I felt most intensely, if, if that is even a fair way of, of describing or appropriate way of describing things. Because um, in the last chapter, when I look at the second marriages that many couples had to have, um, so that there are many couples who marry in, um, some kind of civilian or military marriage in Europe, um, and are, don't have a religious wedding and, when they come to the United States, Britain, or Canada, either because they themselves wanted it, or because it's imposed by their family members, by their usually spouses' family members, they need to have a a, a, a religious wedding um, in order for any future children to be considered legitimate. And um, the the kind of narratives around that, um, and questions of agency and power, and feeling excluded, uh, that. Those were the those were some of the moments that just kind of took my breath away because you 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 had that sense of these of these couples who uh, come to the United States, Britain, or Canada. These mostly women. There are some men. Mostly women are already stumbling. They don't they don't have the languages. They're cultural outsiders. They're dealing with this huge amount of trauma. They many of them don't have family members, and they're within many of these cases it's within three weeks. In some cases it's within 48 hours have to have this other kind of public wedding, um, which only exaggerates their sense of, of feeling like outsiders. And, and to me, that just, Oh, it broke my heart reading, reading, reading those sources.
2: That's that's I, yeah. I mean, I think that's another really brilliant illustration of the way that on the something on the surface could seem like just a cause for celebration or a sign of successful adaptation, but with the insights that you're able to bring to bear, you can, it, it, it becomes actually quite wrenching.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, and he just passed away yesterday, right? The incredible scholar, Lawrence Langer, and, and thinking about some of his work around the you know, the disintegrated self, there, there are all these moments where the these individuals are are forced to sort of recognize who they wish would be at their side, who is absent. Um, and whether, re- you know, rather really they had those relationships with those individuals in the way in which they remembered, or if they're because of the moment, this is the story that they're telling themselves, right? They, they, they have at these sort of so-called life cycle events moments where they see other family and are forced to recognize sort of how alone they feel and also how alone they imagine those around them see them, right? So, um, you know, at these second weddings, whether or not all of the guests sort of look at these individuals and say, oh, poor, Thala, poor, you know, Lala, poor, whomever, Um, Helena, you know, they're all alone with no family, or if they just look and say, "Oh, what a beautiful bride!" The way these women remember these second weddings is, everyone thought, you know, I was an orphan. Um, they thought I was an orphan.
2: Uh, well, um, I, I, I guess I, I, I wanted to ask about the kind of where we started a little bit with the. What it's like to, because this is a story or a set of stories that for you is clearly very personal and you know, autobiographical, at least in the sense of your larger family. But it's also a very broad story which kind of gets at uh, not only one of the fundamental pieces of modern Jewish experience, but also you know, beyond Jews, this is really a kind of global phenomenon, right? So, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit. Um, about what it's like to write about your own family in and, and your own life kind of in 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 this context and did you feel very self-conscious about that or did you rather kind of see it as just a something which gave you insight into this much broader phenomenon um, and then you could kind of move move beyond the the individual in that case
0: in many ways it w- it was both I I never thought that I would write the conclusion that I wrote about my own Family narrative. I went into the project thinking that I was never going to write about my family, in part because, without giving away too much, people should read the book. Um, There was sort of there was a secret um, that we all knew, so I guess it wasn't so much of a secret, but it was it was shared that it was not to be shared with public with the public, and so it, it never I would write a story about my. Uh, grandparents and my grandparents left very little in terms of a historical record so i i was the only one that was that had access to my grandmother's story she would only share so much with me and um and yet every time i sort of went somewhere where there might be something about my grandparents story i collected materials and and would always share it with my father who was was an only child and and my siblings And at one point when I was writing the book, I began to kind of recognize that this wasn't just giving me insight into my grandparents' story, that my grandparents' story gives insight into the book. And so I drafted an epilogue, which later became the conclusion, and sent it to my parents and my siblings and and asked um, them what they thought. Did, Did they think that... I should be including our family history in this book or should I keep it to the side and 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 I, I and even though we all have our kind of elements of passive aggressiveness I mean I I was I was really quite transparent with them that this was their call and if they didn't want this in the book then I had another conclusion which I actually did have and I and I shared that with them too so that they knew that I wasn't I didn't need it um to finish the project and My siblings both said, you know, it's dad's call and with his parents, it's his call. And my father, you know, absolutely to his personality said, I will let you, I will read it and I will give you, you know, I will tell you what I think in two weeks. Um, And indeed, right. Two weeks to the day he and I, you know, I speak with my parents regularly, but he didn't bring it up. I didn't bring it up because I knew two weeks to the day and indeed two weeks to the day he called and he said that he wanted me to include it, he thought it was really important. And, um, and then, and then he sort of began to take delight in, in the project. And so um, there's a picture of of him and my uh, grandparents in the conclusion. Um, recently, the book was reviewed in L'histoire and they wanted a, a color photo. And so there's my father's bar mitzvah photo is there. So. I think he's enjoying this sort of new, whatever, 15 minutes of fame, um, but but there was a lot of thinking that went into whether or not I should be sharing my, my family's history in part because of the secret and also because my parents are private individuals and I, I didn't want them to feel like I had... Push them into the public arena or like they didn't have agency over their story. And and that's something that I do write about in the book more generally, the importance of the historical actors having agency over their own narrative. Um, And and so I always try tried in the book and try and I'm writing an article now on on kind of emotions and and encounter um, to to sort of give credence to the stories that people create and narrate for themselves and how important that is.
2: I think that's a really good place to end the discussion of the book itself. Um, But, and I don't want to take too much of your time, but before I let you go, you did mention just now an article that you're working on. And I wanted to, uh, as I generally do at the end of these discussions, just to give you a chance to talk about new, new projects, new research avenues. I know the book came out pretty recently, so it's, uh, I, I wouldn't expect you to have gone too far in a new project already, but I'm sure you have other ideas and I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about them.
0: So I have two articles that I'm working on that do come out of this book. One looks at the cluster of emotions that get invoked when the couples describe how they met one another. So that initial moment of encounter, uh, I, I just was fascinated by that question and couldn't really go deeply into it in the book itself it would have led me down a rabbit hole and so that book that article is is um, kind of under revisions right now and and hopefully will will be published soon the other article is sort of only toe deep and that is that um, there were a number of infant and childhood illnesses on some of the warbright ships I'm Interest. I want to know more about, about those. Um, and there were medical reports and, and, and so I've been collecting materials concerning that. It is possible that I might write an intertwined biography of two of the couples that get featured in the fifth chapter. The fifth chapter looks at sort of the exceptions to the rule, the cases where, uh, immigration visas first are extended and then rescinded. So there were two couples where the uh, where the foreign civilians, the women both are born and grow up just blocks from one another in Frankfurt, have very different wartime experiences, very different post-war experiences, but are both at the center of these exclusion cases. I've received access to materials here in the United States all of the surveillance materials um I just received FOIA approval in Britain so I have to get to London and and see what's there so if if there's a lot there then that might be at the heart of uh, the next project and if there isn't much there then that will turn into an article and um and then I'll pursue a, a project that I'm really interested in in concerning um, infertility and miscarriage among uh, female survivors um, so there's been a lot on on fertility, but I'm I'm actually kind of interested in the ways in which women talk about uh, infertility and challenges having children uh, particularly during the moment of this baby boom. So that might be an article or a book we'll we'll see. but that's down the road.
2: Oh, well, that's something I very much look forward to hearing about. It sounds like a very important Avenue of research.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you so much for
2: your time. It was really such a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm so excited about the book and uh, glad to hear that it's getting the recognition that it deserves. And uh, once again, I would encourage everyone to look for Between Two Worlds, Jewish War Rise After the Holocaust, published by University of North Carolina Press. So thank you so much, Robin.
0: Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate it.